Hello, I'm Deborah Watling, and I played Victoria Waterfield in Doctor Who in the late 60s. Um, well, welcome to Doctor Who on Tarot. Hello, I'm Fraser Hines, uh, Jamie McCrimmon from Doctor Who, and welcome to Doctor Who on Target. And in fact, that's the monsters were normally on our targets, weren't they? Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who books from the 1970s and 80s. If you missed Doctor Who on TV in those pre-DVD days, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the target novelisation. So jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and join us as, with a wheezing, groaning sound, we discuss, analyse and reminisce Doctor Who on target. Colonel, turn out your pockets. Quickly now. Dumbly, Lethbridge Stewart obeyed. He produced keys, money, notebook, wallet, and the tiny model of a yeti. It started bleeping faintly. That's why they tracked you so easily, said the doctor grimly. He was reaching for the yeti model to make it safe when the door smashed open. The vast, shaggy bulk of a yeti filled the entrance. With curious formality, the yeti entered the room and took a position to one side of the door. The second yeti entered and stood on the other side. Then Professor Travers came in. He stood like a barbaric monarch, flanked by guards. Father! cried Anne joyfully. She started to move forward, but the doctor stopped her. Anne saw that her father's face was blank, mask-like, all traces of humanity wiped away. With a shock of horror, she realised what had happened. He had been taken over by the great intelligence. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is Greg in Swansea. And this is David in Chelmsford. The exciting clip we just heard was from Doctor Who and the Web of Fear by Terence Dix, which was originally published in August 1976 and subsequently released 41 years later as an audiobook, read by David Troughton. Well, assuming that you didn't see it on original transmission, David, um, what was your first experience with this book? Mm, Well, you're absolutely right. I didn't see it on the original transmission, for reasons beyond my control, but largely the fault of my mother, I wasn't born until Fury from the Deep, episode two. Well, that's inconvenient. <laughs> yes, it was, it was very bad planning. I'm going to take your question in three stages, actually, because my first awareness of Yeti in Doctor mm. Who, if you can believe it, came from collecting the Weetabix stand-up figures from oh, 1975 really? there were six sets six different daleks and various other monsters predominantly john pertwee's monsters but some other monsters as well and the yeti was on the same card as the white robot and the draconian and a dalek so i thought oh yeti doctor who this requires investigation yeah. now my first target book was doctor who and the abominable snowmen So you can see my Yeti fixation was Mm. already thriving. Yeah. And having experienced, I could never say the chief monk's name. It was beyond me to read it. I still don't know what he's called to this very day. But, of course, the moment The Web of Fear came out as a target book, I had it. 45p, Mm. it was mine. It had a colour cover from Chris Achilleos. 
It, yeah. As I say, 45p. It had a lovely purple spine and a Doctor yeah. Who logo from the diamond, the Tom Baker diamond. Oh. And I was hooked, really yeah. hooked. So, oh. so my first experience was the Target novelization. Oh, that's fabulous. It sounds like you coveted it. It's just actually struck me that I, there, I had another source of Yeti information. And this was the 1976 Doctor Who monster book by Terence Dix. Inside that book, there were black and white photographs twinned with some Chris Achilleos drawings. Mm. And for the Web of Fear, we had that famous picture of Anne Travers recoiling from a lurching Yeti. Oh. It was a hypnotic image to a seven yeah. or eight-year-old. I think eight I would have been at that time. And I thought, oh, this looks exciting. I didn't even begin to consider that the BBC might not hold it. No, <laughs> Let alone no, that it would take another, I don't know how many years to get it back. Oh, well, this this is it. I mean, it it has been you know an absolute lost treasure, and uh, that that picture that you were talking about, um, it's iconic, isn't it? It's, it's well, it wonderful... it is. There were two, I think. There was the Anne Travers one, and I don't know if it was in the Monster Book or if it was in a DWM or somewhere much later. But I think it might have been in the Monster Book. And there's a picture of Professor Travers with these great big furry claws menacing him. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, that's fabulous. I, do you know, those pictures, as soon as you mention those, then they, they, they're right in front of me in my mind's eye, as Shakespeare said. Um, mm -hmm. Just wonderful images. And, and it's really interesting because, of course, I, I'm, I'm the same as you in that I, I never saw it on original transmission. And... Um, it was the target novelization, but I didn't have the benefit of that um, rather eclectic mix of monsters you collected from the uh, from the cereal packets. Mm. Um, I, I didn't know anything about them, but I knew what a Yeti was, and I'd heard about Yeti and Abominable Snowmen, but I think it was this cover which captured me. I... I I used to go to Deborah Smith or John Menzies on a, on a Saturday morning with my pocket money, and there'd be a range of Target books there. And when I first started, because it was, it was quite an early one, wasn't it? Well, it was, yes, not the very earliest, but yeah. 76 was when the yeah. range was really picking up. Yeah, it was when Terence Dix had to go into overdrive to, to catch up. But when you think about it, 76 isn't that far removed from when the story was originally broadcast. And yet it seemed a, a lifetime earlier, didn't it? Those were definitely historical photos in the Doctor Who monster book, no question. Yes, absolutely. And and like I say, I remember choosing this book, you know, I didn't know the uh, the Pat Troughton Doctor, I didn't know the characters within, I didn't know the companions. But I remember looking at this cover and going, that's the one I'm getting today, you know, that's that one. And... Uh, <laughs> And I loved it. It's it was just such a fabulous read that uh, it, it was burnt into my memory because I remember afterwards then when they brought the Yeti back for the twentieth anniversary and we had Pat Troughton, the Brigadier, a Yeti in a cave. Oh, I nearly exploded in the excitement. Mm -hmm. It was fabulous. Well, I think know. we all did. Yes, yeah, you're right. You're right. So. Your impression of it after you read it, so you became, and clearly you liked it, you, you previously had the experience, had you read The Abominable Snowman first? Yes, I had read that one first, and as right. I said, I'd struggled with some of the names in it, it was mm. seemed quite an advanced read. This one was fairly straightforward by comparison. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it was... I think was the it... trickiest thing was keeping track of all the station names, as they all were mentioned yeah, you see, but this this is the this is something that I did want to talk about with this story because um, with the abominable snowmen, I, I agree with you. You know, I, I I don't know if it's Pad Massimbava, something like that. Mm, is the mm. I don't know. There's a lot of difficult terminology in, in that <laughs> book, you know. But um, yes, there's a lot of cod Buddhism in there to uh, <laughs> wade through. But very very atmospheric and. Uh, you know the solitude of the of the way they're they're you know marooned on that mountain. You know it's this fabulous story. Well, it's I, also I, one of the ones that has got illustrations as you go along, 
Yes. I remember the one of Jamie discovering the pyramid of control oh. spheres. Yes. And I think he had a great big stick and was going to smash them to pieces. Yes, that's uh, right. Just, yeah. Yeah, so so those helped to form pictures in my young mind, definitely. Yes, yeah. I think, um, you know, having that experience there, because it is another one of my very, very favourite Doctor Who stories. Um, mm. But getting back to The Web of Fear, as I say, I remember this one and being enthralled by it as the target novelisation, loving the, the scenery of it. I mean... And when I think we, you know, when you're on the London Underground, I mean, I think you've shown me some of the some of the stations there, you know, and you can just feel the atmosphere in there, you know, to uh, to think that uh, they filmed this not actually there, but they they what did they do? They reproduced it on set, didn't they? Yes, they had to build it as a set in studio. But yeah. um, no, I understand. I just wondered why they chose to do an underground-based story. It must be to do with sort of lurking in tunnels and all the mystery and, as you say, atmosphere and I suppose fear of the dark as well. Uh, it's mm. just a, it's just a creepy place for an unseen menace to be lurking, isn't it? Well, it's it's fascinating actually because I, it never occurred to me when I read this book originally, but it's occurred to me when they found. Um, Minus the episode three, of course, the meeting with the brigadier. When they when they found the story again and we saw it, I um, it struck me as thinking about it logically and thinking of the story. This it's utterly bonkers. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's the most. It's complete madness. You've got, you know. Um, you, you've got an invisible force from outer space called mm. the intelligence. Mm. You've got not Yeti being taken over, but now robotic Yeti with glowing red eyes. Mm. You've got web guns of mm. all things. The London Underground, the, ch the the chosen site for an invasion of the Earth. It's mad. Yes, it is slightly mad. I mean. I would have liked some sort of explanation as to why operating from the London Underground Network was necessary. I mean, we've only just got Wi-Fi down there, so <laughs> it's rubbish for phone signals still if you're on the deeper lines. But um, yeah, I, yeah. I can only assume that the London Underground was topical in science fiction at that time after all those shenanigans experienced by Bernard Quatermass in the Hammer film the previous year. Oh, yeah, that's if you remember very, when I, they extended the line to Hobbs Lane and all hell broke loose. Yeah, yeah, fabulous, <laughs> a classic film, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, do you know, it's really interesting, actually, because some of the things which we see in it, it's almost a bit of a bit of a greatest hits story, this one, because I, I feel that um, The Abominable Snowman was a huge success, wasn't it, on right. TV? And um, they were asked very quickly to come back uh, mm. with this one, I believe, and um, obviously they felt, well, look, you know, they loved the Yeti, they loved the this. Now, even though it was established at the end that the Yeti are actually lovely, gentle creatures who'd been taken over by this horrible intelligence to become evil, you know, we, we have, um, you know, we, we have a situation here where a lot of those scenarios are revisited in this story. Right. I mean... You know, like you mentioned, the cave, with the cave scene you said with the drawing and the original target novelization with Jamie about to smash mm. those two. Well, in a way, isn't it the same scenario we have here where they're about to destroy the Yeti with the web and there's the explosion that they're going to bring it down on themselves? Right. There's, there's, there's quite a, a repetition of sort of, I don't know, sort of atmospheric, scary scenes. But you this, know, yes, in. but this is how sequels work. You give the people what they had first time, dressed up slightly differently, but you still manipulate all the triggers that made them love it the first time round. So yeah. it doesn't surprise me. It's that difficult second album. Yeah. If, it's not, if it's not the same as the first one, people lose interest, perhaps. I don't know, but I, I, I must quickly just throw this in actually because I'm as part of the general preposterousness of the story if that's a word 
it yeah, isn't. it is. If it isn't, it should be. But yeah. why is it called the Great Intelligence anyway? I mean, firstly, it seems malicious. Secondly, mm. it gives the Doctor a full hour to come up with a way of defeating it rather than take him over on the spot. That didn't strike me as particularly clever. Perhaps no. it's misnamed, I don't know. But um, shouldn't have let him have 60 minutes grace in which to devise a solution. That was <laughs> foolish. <laughs> now, the problem here, David, you see, is you are looking at this story now with the cynicism of an adult rather than the mind of a child, which we first encountered it, isn't it? <laughs> I think. And, and it's absolutely right, of course, what you're saying. You know, it, It's a story which is very easy to pull apart because it is bonkers and all just sort of chucked in. I mean, web guns, what on earth... I mean, who who made these robotic Yeti? You know, why were they designed with... It's just madness. Well, the other thing, of course, is that, you know, it's a great opening to the story in the museum. Oh, it's fabulous. But again, I would have liked a better explanation about why the revival of the Yeti exhibit was so critical to the plan of this great intelligence. It's simply said to be another pair of hands or a ready pair of hands yeah yeah but something that had the capacity to invade on the scale that it seems to and take the control that it had i know everyone's got to start somewhere but did it really need the yeti exhibit or has that just been thrown in to give us that marvelous opening if it has it absolutely justifies it because the museum sequence is great oh it's wonderful it is so that museum sequence, the whole first, because we, of course, we had this first episode um, available. We've always had it, haven't we, mm. I think. Mm. And I'm assuming you you saw it. Um, what was that DVD release? It's a great set. Oh um, yes, it was the, the Troughton years, was it? No, that was the yeah. VHS. It was Lost in Time. Lost in Time, where we had these together. Um, so what when you did first actually see it, what was your impression? Bearing in mind you you clearly had a very strong impression of this story. So when you actually saw it on on screen, how, how did you feel about that? Well, I was excited by the story. As I said, all the business in the museum and Travers going to the museum in a bid to recover the Yeti and then the brutal murder at the museum. It was all sort of hammer horrory to me. It was it was good stuff. Yeah. With, you know, this menace in a museum. But just quickly picking another hole in it. Why on earth did Travers make it his life's work to reanimate the sphere? I mean, what was he thinking of? And having done so, instead of trying to buy the abominable snowman back... Could he not have just persuaded Julius to let him wrap it in a load of cling film so that its sphere flap didn't open? <laughs> I, I know I'm being wise after the event, but um, it's surely some, I don't know, preventative measure. Yeah. But anyway, without him doing those things and being such an oaf, we'd never have had the story. So I suppose we should be grateful. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it is, I mean... As we've already said, it's a very easy story to 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 pull apart. I think because let let's face it, you know, I think whereas the abominable snowman had, um, I think it had a real sense of story and structure, and uh, you know, when we got to it, there was a there was a proper climax. There mm. was a you know an ex explanation it all sort of made sense sort of ish you know we know this mysterious great intelligence whereas here they've gone wow that was a huge hit everybody loved it they want us to do another one let's ramp it up let's check some more mad <laughs> things as well and i know let's bring in douglas camfield and let's have battling yeti with the army and guns and you know on screen visually it's just um, just a, a fabulous experience, I think. I do yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, it's 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 wonderful story, but no, you're right, David, you mustn't think about it. <laughs> you mustn't think of it. One of the first things that Terence Dix tells us about Travers, he is a failed anthropologist who has turned into an electronics expert. <laughs> and he's also got this sort of professorship from somewhere. Because, yeah. as you know, yeah. you don't earn a professorship. It's a title. It's an appointment. 
<laughs> so Lord knows where he got that as well. But never mind, never mind. He got the sphere going again, and we must accept that he was misguided in doing so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if we if we look at the you know the storyline as as it is, as he as he pointed out, I mean, we're going through it. We, I do like at the beginning of this story that the there's a bit of um a bit of a prequel section to it, isn't it? Mm. Which is that. Um, where we we re- reintroduce to Travers, and that's where I think um, isn't that where Town Sticks informs us about this? Um, he suddenly become a uh, an electronics expert, isn't it? Well, I think the backstory is lovely. I, I yeah. do take my hat off to Terence for giving us that background. It was good. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you think though that maybe seeing that it's a very visual story with a lot of that because it's a six part of this story, mm. isn't it? But there's an awful lot of that which is battling between Yeti and Unit, isn't there? Mm. I think even the book adopts that structure around the middle, where right. it does seem that they're battling one way and then they're battling another way, and yeah. they're basically getting nowhere fast, and in the end the enemy comes to them. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, um, I mean, it's for a target, it's, it's quite a substantial novel. It's 152 pages I'm looking at here, which... You know, it's not it's not nowhere near the realms of uh, you know of, of the uh, some of the early ones, the Malcolm Hulkwins, for example. Mm. But it's still for a Terence Sticks novel. Mm. It's pretty substantial, right? Um, but do you think um, do you think Terence faithfully adapted this from the screen? Then, well, I think he adapted it fairly faithfully, but I did notice that mm. we have episode one's cliffhanger about the Doctor being in a state of anxiety overseeing the Yeti and the explosion all primed to go off. Doesn't go off, so that's the resolution. It doesn't go off. And pretty soon we seem to have the meeting between the Doctor and the Brigadier. So it makes me wonder if anything at all happened in Episode 2 or was it just, I don't know, an ongoing battle or or what happened? Because Terence seems to miss the whole thing. Unless mm. I've fundamentally misunderstood what happens when in the story. Mm. But That's but it. yes, I think he distills it down to all the juiciest, most character-based bits and yes. gives an impression of the ongoing skirmishes without actually filling the book to too great a capacity with them. Yeah, yeah. It's um, something which... For example, when we get to the end of this story, and I'm jumping a bit here, but when we get to the end, that resolution where everything is just over and done with in in, in ten minutes, that comes. He, he he's pretty faithful with that, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, that, yes, I agree with you. That's absolutely how it happens on telly. Yeah, yeah. Now you you would think that perhaps. You know, he'd skipped it a bit in the book, but no, it's it's exactly as it as it is on the TV, as you right. say. Right. Yeah. Do you think I'm looking at some of the chapter titles here, David, as well, mm. because we've got classic Terence here, you know, and um, we've got Return of Evil, The Web in Space, The Monster in the Tunnels. These these are page turners. They would have kept me going right. all the way through. Danger for the Doctor, Battle with the Yeti. The web returns again and again. The terror of the web, escape mm. from the web. I mean, you could look at the, uh, the titles and go, story done. I read that. I know <laughs> what's happened. <laughs> yes, those pithy titles were one of Terence's trademarks, and I know you love them. Yeah, I do, I do. But this one, Captives of the Intelligence, you know, it's it's quite interesting, isn't it, that at the end, is it, it's, what is this intelligence and what does he want? And what I don't understand is the Doctor reverses this, doesn't he, so that he absorbs the intelligence. Mm. But he doesn't display anything different. He couldn't have been that intelligent, did he? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it, on the past record of his encounters with the intelligence, there might have been very little to learn from it. Yes, but, yeah, absolutely. But it's only just a bit of fun anyway. It's only words isn't it 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 doesn't have to make literal sense it just no. has to resolve nicely so that evil is defeated and goodness wins through albeit with quite a few casualties yeah yeah mm. i mean absolutely i mean 
I I feel very much that that this is a story which um, it doesn't have depth. It doesn't have the sorts of um, social example, you know, issues that we've looked at in the past few with Galaxy 4 and so forth, you know. It, it doesn't have those. It's very much a right rollicking action adventure story. It's it's creepy. It's very scary, you know. We've got um, lovely touches, you know, like uh, like I say, the London Underground and the uh, all these sorts of things. We we also have in this story some iconic moments in Doctor Who's history. Well, we've got the first encounter with Colonel Lethbridge Stewart. Yeah, yeah. and that happens at the beginning of Disc Two. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Terence actually Terence does some nice writing touches, doesn't he? He says in mm. its own way this is as significant as the meeting between Livingston and Stanley. Now, there's no way I would have understood that reference in 1976. Oh, do you know, that's really interesting, actually, because I, uh, I wouldn't have understood that then. And I, I, I think even now it doesn't hold much significance with me either with that. Because... Don't they go off and seek the source of the Nile or something trivial? I don't know. Yeah, Doctor Livingstone, I presume. We all yeah. we all know these things, but I think mm. I, I think it's gone down in history as something about something, but what it actually is, I, I'm not quite sure. What what's the significance of of meeting? Him? Well, I just it's, think it's a famous meeting. It's it's yeah. to say, you know, this meeting is of equal significance, and the, and yeah. the truth of it is, it's actually of more significance, aside from the fact it's made up in this story, of course. But yeah. yes, but what I did like, and I don't know if you noticed it, but Terence actually projects forward, doesn't he? He he speaks of a time when the Doctor will partner the then promoted Brigadier in future stories. Yeah, and, and I thought that rather splendid. It was, it was. It's a lovely touch there, and and um, we'll, we'll be getting on to the audio in a minute. But I just say that. Um, just in textual form, Terence has done a lovely job of that. It was quite touching. But they pay homage to that as well in the in the audio form, don't they? There's, um, I noticed when that uh, scene is read by David Troughton, um, there's a lovely bit of background music mm. coming in, a bit of a, a twang, the sort of thing we would have got in season 18, who was it, with Christopher Bidmead, where we get a little... A little Doctor Who motif to right. let us know something serious is happening mm-hmm. or significant, and I, I love that. It was really, really, um, you know, uh, really interesting that Terence did that because, considering when we were in the range of, of Doctor Who, there, I wonder what would unit have had the significance at this stage? When oh it was no, written? it was not really thought of was it i mean unit as we know it was created by derek sherwin yeah, the following yeah. year this yeah. was just the army yes yeah and it's wonderful i really like that if we look at the narration so we've got david troughton patrick mm. troughton's son joining us once again for uh, another target novelization what did you think of David Troughton's narration, David? Well, as you know, I'm a huge fan of David Troughton mm-hmm. and um, have seen him act on stage quite a number of times now. And mm. clearly this disposes me to be something of a fan of his. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought his narration was excellent. Obviously, he has an advantage with the doctor's voice because he sounds a bit like his father. Oh, yes. Yeah, but there were so many other characters that he had to deliver. He d- mm. he made Jamie slightly Glaswegian, which I thought was nice. Yeah, yeah. He did a sort of a northern accent for Sergeant Arnold. Mm-hmm. And he did a Welsh accent for Private Evans. He did. I'm sure we're going to talk about Evans later. We are, we are. But, um, yes, he had a good range of voices. The Brigadier didn't have his own distinct voice, but he sort of had a semi-clipped delivery just for the army personnel. Yes. And yeah. yes, he, he did it really well. He, he's, he, in his audiobook reading career, read 
is it called Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens? Oh, yes, yeah. And if that must be like an ultra marathon in audio book reading terms to get a Dickens book the size of a brick to read in 28 hours. So yeah. this must have been relatively easy for him. <laughs> well, I think um, the impression I had um, doing this, I, again, I, I love um, David Troughton's and Reed. I'm really looking forward to seeing his stage work. And we'll be going to see him perform in Titus Andronicus next January, I believe, isn't it, in London? Mm-hmm. That I'm really looking forward to that. I'm a huge fan of his too, and I uh, as soon as his voice comes on, it sends a shiver down my spine because he is so much like his dad. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we've said it before, you know, and he can do it so wonderfully. But I was also very, very impressed with with the range of the characters. I, I do you know. It's interesting that you just reminded me that he didn't put a lot into the Brigadier, actually. No. And um, I, that, that had passed me over, but now you've mentioned it. That's a pity. I wonder what, what his artistic choice was for mm-hmm. not doing that. But, yeah, the characters of Arnold, I, I love that. Um, it doesn't sound like David Troughton at all, does it? He's no. such a good uh, characterization. And the same with Evans. Mm-hmm. And um, the same as well. Who's the other? Uh, Chorley. Chorley, that's right. Yes, yeah. And he does put a lot of work into them. Now, mm. um, I think Arnold particularly I, I rather liked. Now, mm. we've got a few issues here with, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, being Welsh, it's it's a real pity that <laughs> Evans comes across a lot of it, that he's... Um, foolish and a coward and mm-hmm. it's mentioned a few times we've got this you know welsh word used in rather the same tone as we had with the word woman being used in right. galaxy four i can fully understand why you would be resistant of the sort of welsh stereotype yeah. that has been created in the book yeah yeah it is a bit of a pity but in the, in the actual TV series, it fares worse, I think, than it does in here. But um, I'm not going to stop. You know, you've got to accept, I think, that I think you said in last episode, you know, they are of their time and sometimes mm. we can't, you know, sort of get up to that. And, you know, it's it's got to be there. But I was very, very pleased to see that Terence Dix had actually put a line in near the end of this uh novelization where he sort of gave a bit of redemption to to the character of Evans and he said I think it's something like one of the characters saying he doesn't understand why Evans is like that the Welsh normally make such good soldiers I thought that was a really nice little way to say look this is a this is the character but we're not painting everybody in that uh-huh. light which I thought was you know a nice little uh, a nice little touch but maybe because I'm Welsh I picked up on it Evans is very much the comic relief, isn't he? From yeah, yeah. There's this description of him when he first appears, and it said, it, it talks about his oversized beret, and it <laughs> says it made him look like an elongated mushroom, <laughs> which I thought was wonderful. It was wonderful. I like that line too. It was very good, yeah, yeah. He was comic relief, wasn't he? And, the, and with his tobacco tin and his, um, you know, his... I, I, it's quite comic cowardice, really, wasn't it? You know, where did, it was a lovely mm. scene where, yes, where he's going to leave Jamie, isn't it? Jamie sort of bravely saying, no, nope, we've got to go off and, and do this. We can't. But he's saying, oh, well, I'm off. And then he finds out he's been tracking him behind because he's too scared to go off <laughs> on his own, isn't he? That's true, that's true. I think there's something of a full-on Celtic battle going on between the two. You've got um, yeah, you've got the lion-hearted Jamie, the Scot, yes, and yes. then you've got that cowardly custard Evans. Yes, you're right. <laughs> yes, you're tr- it's true. It's and true. There's a great bit towards the end when the control sphere, when the Doctor's control sphere appears unexpectedly, and he's described as jumping onto his chair like a girl at the sight of a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, it's. Uh... Overall, looking at that, I liked the characters, um, you know. I thought they were you know, quite endearing, you know, some of them. But 
What about the character before we get on to Arnold? What about the character of the 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 reporter, the journalist? Oh, Chorley. Yes, mm. he's called Harold Chorley, isn't he? It's a good That's name. That's right. So. Yes. Yeah. I, I again, Terence gives us a good bit of backstory on him, doesn't he? He does. As if to say, he's sort of bit been promoted beyond his ability, mainly through luck. And there's yes. one bit where Chorley is terribly proud of the fact that he said that London is gripped by a desert of fear a desert of fear and you think oh that would be a good chapter title or a prequel for the web of fear the desert of fear that would work but um terence does warn us that he's stupid as well as being telegenic weak vain and cunning yes so all, all the good qualities there (laughs) (laughs) his function in the story is to be the red herring you know when yeah. there's a traitor in the camp well it's obvious isn't it it's Chorley yes. except they turn the tables on us because it isn't but that's the function he fulfills to exactly. wrong foot us and the first time out it did yeah Absolutely, yeah. Because the problem is, we we have a huge familiarity with the, with the story and what's going on here. But of course, that you know, I remember being gripped by this story and not going on. When when you're of a, a certain age, you're not familiar with the tropes of uh, of stereotypes and so forth. Are you? You know, it's something uh, again which we become familiar with when we when, when we get a bit older. But um, I, this, the character of Chorley, he's there for that purpose. Now, what about Arnold? Because I, I will say, I loved um, David Troutman's characterization of him. I thought he sounded great to mm. me. I really liked it. Um, what did you think, David? Well, I too liked him. Terence's first description of him is as a tough old sweat. Yes. Now, I'm not quite sure what that could mean, but the sweat is unpleasant. Toughness mm. is a virtue. Mm. He, he, you just get the feeling he's sort of world-worn and he's seen mm. it all and he's absolutely the dependable backbone of the British Army. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He comes across to me as the character. I, I imagine these 1950s plays, um, what were some of the famous uh, plays we had about the Army in the um, 1950s? Uh, the Long, the Tall and the Short. The Long, the Short like... and the Tall. Oh, sorry. By Willis Hall. And... He comes across as a sort of character. If I were in a tight situation like that, I'd want him there on my side. He, he would be, you know, well, not taken over by mm. the great intelligence, of course, but <laughs> as, his, as his real personality well, is Well, it's, it's actually very interesting you should mention The Long and the Short and the Tall because in mm. that play we've got a Welsh character and a Scottish mm. character and a stiff upper-lipped young officer, I think. Well, it could be the sergeant, but the Englishman's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> and um, well, I don't know. Perhaps it's a, it's just a formula, isn't it, to have mm. different members of the home nations working collaboratively in a small army force. Well, it's really interesting you say that, David. Actually, because in that wonderful um, Hammer horror film you mentioned earlier, um, Quatermass and the Pet, didn't we have? A reporter type person in that too. I think you're right. Mm. I think you're it's right. Interesting. This is it's almost as if the, the the tentacles of this web of fear has crept out mm-hmm. across the cultural landscape of the nineteen sixties <laughs> and uh, choicely picked all the best. <laughs> well, it, you know, I, to, just to do this to death. Uh, even in Dad's Army, when mm. Walker went, they introduced. Yeah. A Welsh character, Mr Cheeseman. They did, yes. You know, and obviously you had Private Fraser in it all the way through as a Scot. Yeah. You had the upper-class English sergeant. Yeah. And his boss, who is of a lower social class. So so there's something about the dynamic that just works. That's what I'm saying. And it's sad that in this particular case, your own country people took the brunt of the comic relief. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it happens, it happens. But, but, you know, but back to Arnold, I mean, he yeah. is absolutely, as I say, he's he's the man you need with you in a crisis, except mm. he isn't. And mm. the depth of my disappointment when the traitor was revealed, I was devastated. And 
even when I saw the show on telly, I'd forgotten it was him. Oh. And then I experienced that sense of loss and that sense of upset all over again. Why was that? Why, why I was just that? Well, because he was such a good egg. Yeah, but he wasn't. Yeah. He was. He was a rotten apple. Mm. <laughs> Mixing my food analogies up there, but yeah. um, yeah. So so I felt actually as if he'd personally let me down, let alone anyone else around well, him. But he he wasn't responsible. He, uh, no. you know, there's a lovely little description towards the end of Terence's book where the doctor makes clear that Arnold is totally oblivious to the treachery that the intelligence makes him do and it when it leaves him when it when it relinquishes control over him he carries on as normal yes and that's yeah. very very cruel that's very very, very cruel, cruel because he's not even aware of anything that he's actually done being no, manipulated no, by the great he can't even confess to it because he doesn't know but bringing us back to evans in the web of fear he's actually responsible for i think one of my most nostalgic elements in this whole story because there's a scene in the tunnel where he uses a vending machine to provide some chocolate for him and Jamie and I hadn't even thought about those old machines for years and the minute he said that he got the bar of chocolate out of the drawer I saw the wooden frame and the glass and all the chocolate stacked up behind it so I was transported back and actually... In episode three, although that episode is at this time lost to us, mm. one of the John Cura photo snaps reveals an in-joke because the chocolate that Evans takes is called Camfield's Fairy Milk Chocolate. Two ounces for two shillings. And of course, it's an in-joke about Douglas Camfield, the director. Wow, he wasn't aware of that. That's great. Well, there you go. So... What? A key that's, moment in the story. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's really good. Um, if we think about the, the new um, BBC audio presentation of it, which, of course, has just been released, which has prompted us to uh, to talk about it now. Um, David, what do you... Because I think we both of us like to discuss the technical presentation as well as the, the quality of the narration. Mm. What, what, what are your impressions? What are your views on this one? Well, I think they're probably going to be broadly similar to you in that the soundscape is delivered at such an intensity that it's almost crosses from being narration into dramatisation. Mm. And I've never been more aware of it in another audio and it mm. does sort of ratchet up the excitement of everything a yeah. bit. There are a yeah. couple of disproportionately loud noises, but it's not that it's not that sort of sound with everything approach that we had in the Highlanders. And no. it's not that sort of I don't know, there are no wild laser battles or anything. But <laughs> I know I know that you want to say something about the actual sound effects that have been taken and used. Yes. Well I I, I completely agree with you there that um they sort of here BBC audio are sort of blurring the line between dramatization and narration really, mm. aren't they? Mm. But it's really nice that it's not spread out, like you say, being oversaturated with sudden noises, which we don't need. It, they tend to be contained little episodes, don't mm. they? They tend uh, to heighten the battle scenes. Yes, yeah, they do. And um, I was, I have to say, I was thrilled when the Yeti came in because I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that they use the real sound effects from the web. Really? I think they are. You I see, because when I was listening to those, in my head I was picturing a lion roaring in slow motion. Oh. You see, and I, I'm wondering if that's where the sound originates. You know how in Jurassic Park that's exactly where all the dinosaur noises come from. Well, but but yes, they, they, they did sound authentic to me. That sounded like genuine Yeti sounds. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, my little bit of knowledge here is um, I do believe that the Yeti sounds are created by recording a toilet flushing. Right. And then slowing it down and playing it backwards. That now, sounds pretty technical. Now, I do know that I actually had a go of, of replicating this sound myself. <laughs> so You sad we, man. I know, this is very <laughs> sad. So... 
maybe as <laughs> I was about to say a treat for our listeners it's not going to be a treat I'll see if we can be chased off by a yeti at the end of this episode shall I have a go with that you could do <laughs> oh dear it's gone madness. It's infectious, this story, you see, isn't it? We're just going bonkers ourselves now. Well, I am anyway. David, so you were really pleased with the sound of that. And it, it was, because it is an iconic sound, it's the sound of those yetis roaring. And But I was um, a little taken aback by the sound then of um, the sphere. That wasn't the original oh, sound. Oh, no, it wasn't. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because in the Web of Fear, especially that opening scene you mentioned uh, in the museum, it's a wonderful, that bleep, bleep, bleep mm. sound of it rolling mm. along was really... And why on earth didn't they use that too? I don't know. It would have been easy enough to have sourced, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. That's quite strange why they don't. Perhaps they weren't aware of it. But I, I'm becoming more and more impressed with the... The, the soundscape, the technical presentation of the, the BBC audio range. I think they're really finding a way of doing these target audios. You're absolutely right in, in that they ventured a, a lot into the dramatisation area, but it's been it's been kept to some scenes. Mm-hmm. And um, do you, tell me, Dave, do you do you want do you want to hear more of it, or do you want them to? shy away from it more well it's not a question of shying away from it but i want them to do things that are appropriate to the material so in this particular example where we've got lots of dialogue happening in tunnels it seems very reasonable for them to treat those voices with echo and obviously david troughton's voice was treated electronically a few times to deliver a different voice for the possessed Travers and of course the great intelligence when it appears and I think as I say I don't want sound for sound's sake but I do want if it doesn't take me out of the story I'm quite comfortable with them creating fuller soundscapes Mm, yeah do you know that's actually very interesting you said that because I was uh I mentioned in our Galaxy 4 podcast that um, I think they found a bit of a uh, a bit of a way to show now the when characters are talking because they put a bit of an echo on the sound. But of course, in this instance, it could be they put the echo on because, as you say, they are in the London Underground, so well, their voices would echo. Mm, well, I also think it helps to sort of delineate between the narrator's voice and the character voices if you slightly treat people who are speaking. Right, But you wouldn't do it, say, I mean, I I don't know, just to be silly, you know, if we were listening to the narration of a Charles Dickens book, Hmm. we wouldn't expect that sort of treatment, and indeed it wouldn't be there, would it? It wouldn't need to be. It would all be quite, what's the word, measured and appropriate and and i suppose in a nutshell that's what i'm asking for in respect of the target audiobooks as well so would you for example would you like them to use the opening and closing type of music no i don't think it's necessary i think we're all fully aware of what those things sound like yeah you know the opening and the closing music i quite like I, I like the little musical stings. They do seem to have a quite a jaunty. Mm. Not it's not a version of the Doctor Who theme, but it's a sort of an alternative Doctor Who theme that comes on at the end of every audio book, and I think that's absolutely fine. You know, mm. they do sort of have cliffhanger build-up music in the titles as well, which it would to to close each disc. They do, which again is is fine. Yeah. It's nice. It's nicely. Uh, it's nicely done. That, and as I said, especially with that scene where we first meet the brigadier, and the significance of Terence Dix's um, words there are counterpointed with the with with those lovely little musical stings and uh, mm. which we mentioned earlier. So it's it's very nice. I think a lot of thought and effort is going into these discs now, which. Mm. Um, I, I'm very, I'm very pleased with. I mean, it was a, uh, overall. 
you know, a very, very enjoyable disc to listen to. Mm. But before we actually move on to, to scoring it, we've mentioned the cover, but we haven't really discussed it, David. No, we haven't. Well, I'll tell you, coming back to Sergeant Arnold... Mm-hmm. I should have been able to discern that he was the traitor very early on because, of course, Chris Achilleos gives us a huge clue because on the cover, the Yeti eye beams are hitting him full on. That's they the are. painting of Sergeant Arnold. Yeah. And so we should have suspected that he was under great intelligence control from the moment we picked the book up. Yeah, he's circled mm. by this light. Isn't he, he is. He's yes, he's, yes, yeah. he is. But that cover is so so superior to the one that replaced it, where the Yeti had torch beam eyes, and sort oh. of was just coming plopped against a, some in the foreground, and there was just some sort of greyish murk behind it, and uh, I can't quite understand why you would see a Chris Achilleos cover and want to change it for anything else ever. That is madness. I, I wasn't aware. They, they've done that. I've never seen that cover. Well, the, I, the, when they did the next version, it was grossly inferior to the oh. cover that Chris Achilleos painted. Well, we've actually seen this cover for real, haven't we? Oh, yeah, we've seen the painting, haven't we? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the detail, I'm just looking with my reading glasses on, on this cover now because I've got this lovely um, copy of the, the reissue one uh, here. And... Um, it's the detail is wonderful. And uh, did you you've mentioned previously, David, the uh, the photorealistic like quality of yes, uh, Andrew Skilleter. Yeah, Andrew Skilleter, and we've got because it, it is one of Andrew Skilleter's, isn't it? Uh, oh no, it's not, is it? It's Chris Achilleos. This is it? Chris Achilleos. Oh well, I I believe he's got the same quality of this photorealism here because Arnold and Patrick Troughton look fabulous. They look just like them. He tends to do black and white line drawings when he does the Doctor, but this one, I think it's the first one I can remember where the Doctor was actually coloured in. You're right. Of course it is full colour, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking through the Target um, book here, and, yeah, all the rest of them seem to be black and white, but this one's colour. That's right. So there's a bit of a departure there. I mean, I I love this... uh, I love the way that they've got the the web um, going across the page there. Again, with the Doctor's head set right in the centre of the web here. But also, it's got a little bit of an echo of the Doctor Who um, opening titles as well. Right, yes. I think, yeah. Maybe I'm being over-imaginative there. You might be. Yeah, yeah. But we've got this beautiful painting of of Pat Troughton here with his Beatles mop top haircut mm. and um Arnold looks superb. Oh he just, does. He, he does just really good, yeah, yeah. And uh, the way he's uh, holding that gun, he looks like he is a real soldier. He looks like he knows what he's doing. Mm. He's not like one of these soldiers out of uh, didn't we have some uh, late uh, you know, Sylvester McCoy stories where the supposed soldiers bore no resemblance to real soldiers whatsoever, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the Yeti looks absolutely great. I love that Yeti. And um do you know I had a feeling he was stalking us at the uh at the Doctor Who. Well, I, I, do you know what? I I felt similarly. I I had this sort of tingling sensation right at the back yeah. of my head. Yeah. But I think ultimately he scares because he cares, you know? That said, I'd prefer he didn't scare me, but I mean, I'm, I'm so glad we got in to see the Yeti. Oh, yeah, me too, me too. It's, it's, yes, it was expensive, but we paid our money and we went. And we saw luck. some other stuff. But yes, if I ever see that Yeti again, I shall be totally scared of him. There used yeah. to be a Yeti at Longleat all those years ago, and he was oh. a much less impressive beast. Oh, because I wonder, was the one at... Um, lonely was it an abominable snowman yet? no it was a web of fear because he, he oh. stood on a london underground backdrop right right david should we should we score this story then yes i'm happy to score it you go first right it's it's iconic it's wonderful it's so atmospheric um i love it i love it but it does have its faults. Um, you've mentioned them all, David. <laughs> yeah. um, 
It's, I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. That seems to me a very reasonable thing to do. Oh. I mean, I love the book. I love the, yeah. I love the backstory that Terence gives us. I love the package. I love the discs. They're fantastic with the mm. Grisakulios painting on them. Yeah. I just adored the way David Troughton delivers the story. And as you've perhaps suggested, the only slight downside to any of this is the fact that if you think about the story too deeply, you can it can only go down in your estimation. So mm. I'm going to purposefully not do that. And I am going to agree with you, and I too am going to award this 8 out of 10. It's a fantastic addition to the Target audiobook range. Oh, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. It, it is. It's just really enjoyable to listen to. I mean, as soon as I finished it, I, I will be happy to uh, to listen to it again. And that's in no small part to uh, David Troughton's narration, I think. Mm. I think it's it's whetted my appetite, though. Um, we, we haven't reviewed The Abominable Snowmen, have we? No. I mean, Doctor Who on Target has reviewed it. You and I haven't spoken about it. Well, I think um, I think maybe, you know, the time will be very soon ripe for a revisit of it. Perhaps we could uh, we could look at it again. And, and what do you think, David? I think that would be a very good idea. Times have moved on. Opinions have changed. Let's give our opinion and our reinterpretation of it, I think. Mm. David, you, you've got something lined up for our next week's episode, which I'm not very familiar with, but I'm, I'm looking forward to reviewing. It's not strictly, well, it's not at all a target one, really, but can you tell us about that? Yes, I have. It's called Doctor Who Death Among the Stars, and it's a 12th Doctor original audiobook. It just says in the synopsis, on one of Jupiter's moons, the Doctor finds an alien base and a stranded abductee. Morton Beck is determined to protect Earth from a hostile universe and he'll kill anyone who tries to stop him. So it's a book by Steve Lyons, the prolific Doctor Who novelist, and we're going to give that a listen and come back to you with our thoughts. That sounds really exciting, David. Who's narrating that? It's Nicola Bryant, oh, companion to the Sixth Doctor. And we've never reviewed it. We've never done one of these original audio adventures, but we have to start somewhere, and the fusion of classic and new who suggested to me that this would be as good a place as any to cut our teeth. And talking of teeth, I don't want to worry you, Greg, but what's that large, furry, growly thing lurking in the corner of the studio? Oh, oh no! Look. We've got to go now, but we'll definitely be back to give you our thoughts on Doctor Who, Death Among the Stars. Now, Greg, when I say run, you run. Hmm? The time will come when the human race will have to face itself in the mirror and decide what it is to be human. They will have to make a choice. They will face their greatest enemy, an enemy that stops at nothing, listens to no one. They will have to fight for their survival. Nothing is beyond its depraved and immoral intention. It takes many forms. It kills, maims and destroys without remorse. It cannot be understood. It cannot be reasoned with. It cannot be defeated when it is fought head-on in the battlefield. It seeps and writhes its way through society, leaving husks of humanity where once there were people. Men, women, children, all are prey to it. But in the future, the people of the world state that enough is enough. If blood is to be spilled, then it has to be worth the sacrifice. It has to be with the intention of the total and utter extermination of the enemy. All means, laws, powers and weaponry are at their disposal. Nothing must stand in their way. They are the saviours of the human race. They are the destroyers of the enemy. They are... The Faith Seekers. The Faith Seekers by Greg James. 
available now on Amazon and Lulu, paperback or ebook. Download it now. There are a thousand ways to die, and the faith seekers know them all. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target. That's DR Who on Target or email us at doctorwhoontarget at gmail.com. That's the end of this episode, and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies, and to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners. <laughs>